Aloha. Mahalo for joining us here on The Conversation. It is Monday, December 18th. I'm Catherine Cruz. This week, we look at what researchers at the University of Hawaii are doing to help us learn more about water quality in the Maui wildfires. We hear more about sail drones and how the cutting-edge green technology is filling a void in data collection for nearshore waters that even satellites are limited in detecting. We learn more about former First Lady Rosalind Carter's ties to Hawaii. It's coming to light since her passing. And Micronesians living in the U.S. can now apply for dual citizenship. We'll hear what that means to Pacific Islanders. Plus, did you know that more food is grown on Oahu's west side than stays in the community? We'll hear about what they're doing to become more food secure. is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. There's quite a bit to learn about the impact the Maui wildfires will have on the environment. Today we hear how University of Hawaii scientists were able to collect baseline water quality information in nearshore areas that could aid how we track the effect on marine ecosystems going forward. Chris Sabine is interim provost for research and scholarship at UH. He worked with sail drones on its first project in Alaska, studying marine life in deep sea conditions. But this water quality project in Hawaii is said to be the most comprehensive undertaking in nearshore waters, where data from satellites can't always capture. He was joined by Amy Markell, a PhD student tasked with sorting the massive data collected by drones that are essentially sailboats with sensors. The technology holds a lot of promise, collecting data for good basic science like never before. I've been working with SailDrone for a number of years. Previously, I was with the NOAA lab in Seattle, and so I was part of those Alaska surveys as well, and that's where I learned how amazing that technology was. But in that case, they were surveying the open ocean. One thing that that they have never done and we have never tried is we were specifically on this mission trying to look at coastal waters very close to the coast, which is difficult on a ship. You know, we do typically oceanography on large ships. You can't really get that close to shore on those ships, but these things can. And so you folks were able to get a good baseline, ground zero level info for our waters across the islands. That's right. So relative to before this mission, there were, you know, about 39, 40 different locations that had been sampled with these high quality water quality measurements that we are collecting. And with these instruments, we're able to collect orders of magnitude more data. They're measuring every half an hour for eight months, three, three vehicles. So it's hundreds of thousands of data points. Okay, so it's kind of a data dump. <laughs> and, yes. And now you've got to process the information. I mean, I don't know, Amy, you're going to be working, uh, you know, sorting through all this data? Yeah, I, I will be sorting through all this data for my PhD dissertation and trying to find some of the outcomes that we see emerge from the data. You know, it's coming in in real time, but we can't analyze in real time. So it's going to take a little bit of time to do the analysis. But we're starting to see how the data might look around the islands. Chris, you had mentioned that you were able to start this project a few months ago, you know, before the line of fires and then post-fire as well. Yes, we, we got the funding and started this project back in April. We had three vehicles that are, and the idea was to survey around all of the islands. We started with Hawaii Island, the big island, and moved our way up the chain from there. And it just happens that we did our survey of Maui in June and July, and then they moved on from there. But after the fire on August 8th, we worked with the governor's office and other various emergency units to confirmed that it was okay, but we, we brought the boats back and did surveys again in later in August and in September. So now we just, we happen to be in the perfect spot to get before and after snapshots of the water chemistry. And I think that's just like 
going to be so valuable. I mean, my gosh, you know, because we don't know what's in that ash. We don't know what's going to get in the environment. And so it really is helping to deal with the real world problem and solution. One of the things that was really amazing after that all happened was the lack of rain and what was going on in the ocean environment there, you know, with all the ash in the water there. And I think looking through the data that we see before and after will be able to tell us a little bit about maybe what's going on there. And so while this was a project that you folks did over six months, is there a chance, you know, a plan and funding so that you could maybe continue this? That's the hope. We're working on our initial funding right now, but if we can show interesting results, we're hopeful that we'll get another uh, infusion of money to allow us to do this again, and that'll be very valuable. And was it very costly to launch this? You know, it was a little over a million dollars to uh, to do this survey. Describe these sail drones, how large they are and how they work. Sure, the sail drones are 23 feet long, and they're at least two humans high. If I'm remembering the photo we took at the beginning there, um, standing next to the drones themselves. Part of that actually goes underneath the water, and on the underneath portion of the drone is where the sensors are installed. So we have temperature, salinity, a pH sensor, which is a new sensor we integrated for this project. Um, there's also carbon dioxide measurements in the water and in the air, and also looking at chlorophyll to tell us a little bit about the plankton that we might be seeing in these areas. With this particular project, I mean, compared to what you were studying up in Alaska, did you have to modify those sail drones very much? A, a little bit. The sensors that we put on the vehicles are different. So one, one thing that I think is very cool about these is it's a completely green technology. So all of the sensors are run off of batteries that are charged with solar panels, and the propulsion is, they are literally sailboats. They are sailing wherever they go. And the, the solar panels were a challenge in Alaska, particularly as the days were getting shorter and shorter. We knew that wouldn't be such a problem here in, in Hawaii. But up there, we were specifically doing fisheries studies, and, and so we had a lot of acoustical sensors to measure the fish abundance in the bay. So this is focusing more on the chemistry, so we had more chemical sensors. There were a couple of sensors that we actually worked with local companies to develop sensors that would go on to these platforms. And were we able to run these sail drones long? than we did in Alaska? We were actually out for eight months. It was planned for six months, but we, we were able to run them for a full eight months, and we would not have been able to do that up in Alaska. The idea is that these sensors then grab the information, they send it up to a satellite, it gets bounced back here, and then how do you sort it all? That's actually one of the things we're talking about right now, what kind of database to build, what needs to go in that initial database, how we're going to quality control the data, you know, what's good data, what's, you know, was the sensor malfunctioning or the drone malfunctioning? Hopefully not. Hopefully the data's all good, but we need to do some of that quality control and double checking. And, and then from there, after we do that quality control and setting up the database, we can start to narrow down some of the more interesting data that we might want to look at and make further calculations to tell us a little bit more about how the water chemistry is changing in our nearshore environment. We've done uh, stories with Arizona State you know, University using this satellite technology to monitor the health of our reefs. So are we doing anything with a reef component at all, or is it mainly with the water? So for the drones, we're not doing that directly. But one thing that's interesting to note is that for a lot of the satellite data that comes in, there's a, a missing spot of data from about three miles out into the coastline. And that data, it's kind of a, uh, we're not really sure. The satellites aren't exactly able to pick it up very well. So having something that's in the water, um, getting that in situ data right there, actual observational data is great to um, increasing our understanding of that zone that satellites aren't always able to capture. Right. That's exactly the area where we were specifically targeting was that zone where the satellite data are more questionable. Right. So it's kind of a dead zone, but hey, you can fill it with this 
type of technology exactly. and collect all that data. I mean, I, I just think, man alive, that's a lot of information to yeah, they, be collecting. They sample 24-7, whether it's stormy weather or calm weather. That's the beautiful thing about these autonomous technologies is they operate under all weather conditions and continuously. They don't get tired. You don't worry about you know, weather conditions or any of that. And so you were able to get funding for these three sail drones. Uh, any chance that we could actually buy one of these things? Or it, I don't know how it works in, in, in this field. You just contract out with the company that has this exp expertise. This That was one of the interesting things about this particular company, SailDrone. It's, it's a fairly new model. Historically in the past, you would have to buy an instrument and then, you know, if you lose it, it's it's on you and you have to figure out how to operate it. This this is a different model where essentially we're buying the data. So the the vehicles are theirs. They operate them. They were the ones with the 24-7 crew of people sitting in Alameda, California, looking at the video feeds from the cameras to make sure that they were operating in a safe way and looking at all of the other sensor information to make sure they didn't run into the reef or run into boats or whatever else, and then they just provide the data. But it, at the end, I get the data, they take their vehicles back, and then they can use their vehicles for another investigation. Okay, so maybe then this is the way to go, that you don't I, have I, the maintenance and the upkeep and all of that. Exactly. There were certainly some challenges with the vehicles. I mean, eight months is a long time to be out at sea in all the weather conditions. There were some challenges, but the sail drone corporation was great at um, whenever there was a problem they could just sail them into the port and they would either bring fix them bring the supplies they needed to fix them or or replace them and then they'd be out sailing again what types of problems did they have i mean did they have any collisions with any vessels or whales or or just something malfunctioned no it's mostly sensors that were malfunctioning the some of the sensors take in very micro liter solutions to do their sampling and when you've got phytoplankton and and other creatures in the water it can accidentally suck up a creature which will plug up the sensor and then there really is no other way to resolve it other than to tail it back into port and flush it out and fix the sensor and then say, okay, try again. Yeah, detour into the garage and right, deal with exactly. it. Okay. What is it, I guess, that maybe excites you, you know, as a, a PhD student, knowing that you've got this incredible cutting edge technology that can really help propel some of the science that we need to know about the ocean? Because to me, it's just amazing that there's so much that we don't know about our oceans. You know, I think for me, I am thinking about the people of Hawaii and, you know, what they might want to know about their island chain and then, you know, the broader global public, what they might want to know about the results that we've seen here and what that might give us for our global understanding. This kind of data, we just didn't have it before. And especially on some of our neighbor islands, which are historically under-researched and we just have, you know, data gaps there, I just, I'm really excited to be able to provide a more comprehensive understanding of our island chain. As we look forward, I mean, obviously this is the first step for us, but I mean, could we be doing some of the studies that they did up in Alaska looking at the fisheries? Absolutely. One of the other benefits of doing this work was to show the capabilities of this technology and a lot of, some of the reason why we've had trouble getting funding for doing this type of work before was it was unproven what it could do in, in our situation, in our state. And um, I think now we've demonstrated that this is a very powerful tool for understanding, you know, e even at the, at the cove level, what the variability in the water chemistry. So the when you talk to many global scientists, their their models that are modeling the chemistry of the waters in the Pacific, they either don't have Hawaii at all, or Hawaii is just a, a dot in this giant ocean. But in reality, those of us that live here know that 
where I live near Kaneohe Bay is quite different from Kailua. And, you know, you just go from, we, we talk a lot about the microclimate on the land, but you have the same thing in the water. And this is the first time that we've ever been able to really document that at this level of accuracy and precision. That was Chris Sabine, interim provost for research and scholarship at UH Manoa, and Amy Markell, PhD student. They're working on a sail drone project looking at water quality in the islands. The team was able to collect data in nearshore waters, including before and after the Maui wildfires, that could provide valuable baseline information on the impact of the natural disaster on our marine ecosystems. Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Dwayne Elgin, author of Choosing Earth, and next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about our collective journey to break down to a mature planetary community. Beginning Sunday morning at 11... Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to supporting the people and places affected by the Maui wildfires. Donations accepted at hawaiicommunityfoundation.org slash MauiStrong. reality check today is about renewed scrutiny at the state hospital following the fatal stabbing of a worker at transitional housing there. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Nick Ruby joins us today. Hi, Nick. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, we make the distinction that, yeah, this assault uh, uh, happened not at the actual state hospital itself. Right. Well, so the assault that we're talking about is is of uh, Justin Bautista, a nurse who works for the Hawaii State Hospital, who was working inside of a transitional housing unit um, on the hospital grounds. Now it's actually, uh, state officials try to make the distinction that despite the fact that this transitional housing unit is um, uh, is, uh, run by employees of the state hospital and on the campus of the state hospital, it is in fact a separate uh, entity from the state hospital. Yes, and you were able to get data uh, over m- more than a decade of all the the violence that happens there. Uh, yes, at the state hospital itself and within uh, sort of the buildings that are considered a part of the, uh, quote, Hawaii State Hospital. And, you know, the numbers that we found were pretty shocking. Um, over the past 11 years, there were more than 1,700 assaults and attempted assaults uh, on staff by patients uh, between fiscal years uh, 2013 and 2023. And I think really what these numbers kind of highlight is that working at the state hospital um, can be dangerous at times for the staff who are there. Yeah, and I mean, those numbers bear out, what, three times a week, every other day, once every other day? It's crazy. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, when I first began covering uh, uh, violence at the state hospital in 2013, uh, uh, a number of workers had actually come forward as whistleblowers to say that these uh, the the assaults were rampant and that they feared for their safety and even then a decade ago um we we saw roughly the same rate of uh of violence occurring there about an attack once every three days and you know i recall talking to a nurse this was oh many years ago and she shared that she had to work the night shift and she, uh, a patient tried to assault her and she had to uh, pull up a mattress to protect herself until you know help uh, could come uh, because they were short-staffed that night, but it's scary. Right. Well, and I think what uh, we need to remember is that the Hawaii State Hospital 
um, uh, wasn't necessarily uh, designed to sort of handle the patients that are there today. There are a number of uh, almost the entire population is made up of patients who have been uh, committed by the courts, um, the criminal courts. And, you know, the, the state did build a new forensic patient facility to help handle uh, some of these patients, you know, and, and bolster security for the staff there. But what we uh, sort of seen is that there are questions about whether or not that new facility has addressed all of these different issues. Yeah, I mean, there, there are some um, problems with what security protocols, you know, overcrowding. Uh, that's right. So this new facility opened in uh, 2021, and already it is uh, overcrowded. We've heard from staff inside the facility that the um, uh, that there are patients sleeping inside of seclusion rooms uh, and that the staffing is still a major problem. I, I believe uh, the Department of Health had told uh, one of my colleagues that there is at least a 20% vacancy rate at the hospital, which of course leads to some of the safety concerns. And, you know, uh, I, I recall that, uh, you know, the, the concern over these, these numbers, um, you know, is... It's scary for the for the workers. I mean, I know the union has stepped up to to kind of uh, raise these issues. Yeah, I mean, the workers have been uh, sort of sounding the alarm bell for for a long time here, and they're looking for somebody to help advocate for them. And I think that uh, the hope is that after sort of this tragedy, they'll have the ability to sort of move the needle a little bit to provide themselves, so to, to get state officials to provide them with better protections that uh, many of them have said that they have gone without for so long. Yeah, and this is important because at one time the state hospital was under federal oversight, and uh, yeah, we don't want to see that again. But thank you so much, Nick. Thank you, Catherine. I really appreciate the time. That was reporter Nick Gruby with today's Reality Check. Uh, you can read his story at civilbeat.org. Earlier this month, at memorial services for former First Lady Rosalind Carter, family members wore flower lei in a nod to President Jimmy Carter's time in Hawaii when he was stationed here at the Navy. The passing of Mrs. Carter was felt deeply by the local nonprofit Project Donna. We talked to Executive Director Cindy Osajima recently about the connection with the former First Lady and the passion she had for caregivers. A Community Voices piece for Honolulu Civil Beat that she had submitted for consideration caught my eye. We are an interfaith volunteer caregivers program, and it started in 1989 by two very visionary women, uh, Mrs. Shimeji Kanazawa and Mrs. Rose Nakamura, and it started out of the Mo'ili'ili Honganji um, kitchen during bond dance season. Mrs. Kanazawa was a very well-known advocate for um, the um, elderly population in Hawaii, and she took, I think, five five groups of people for the White House Aging Unconference. Yeah, so she was very active. So in 1989, there was a core group of people that decided it's time to start in Hawaii because at that time we were a member of National Interfaith Volunteer Caregivers Program. Actually, Mrs. Kanazawa was a board of trustee on that. And she thought it's time to come back to Hawaii and to start something here um, to help the elderly in, um, in on Oahu, first of all. So um, she and Mrs. Nakamura got together and they wrote up everything and we started Project Donna again like in 1989 and out of Honganji with about 50, maybe about 50 women, of course, helping about 100 elders in the community and since then and we're going to celebrate our 35th anniversary um, in January um, we have what we call sites on Maui um, Big Island and um, Oahu 
and they're all churches, temples, or community organizations. And so, you know, you folks are there in the community just doing the work, uh, you know, unsung heroes, heroines, uh, because you are just serving and filling a need yes. uh, in our community that is great. What did you think when you heard uh, the news about um, the former First Lady's passing? Very sad, very sad, because I knew, you know, the history with the connection with Project Donna, Mrs. Rose Nakamura, and Mrs. Rosalind Carter. So I thought, okay, um, um, I had a couple of agendas (laughs) to Mm -hmm. fulfill. We wanted the people, we wanted readers to know about um, Mrs. Rosalind Carter, and, and and I call her a fierce advocate of caregivers, because her institute in Georgia, um, the Rosalind Carter Caregiver Institute in America's Georgia is for caregiving, and she's been doing this forever. And then, um, and then, of course, when she came to Hawaii in 1994, now Mrs. Rose Nakamura, another very not a well-known fact that received the very first inaugural Rosalind Carter Caregiver Award in 1993. And then Project Donna, we hosted a reception because she was going to come through here, uh, through through Hawaii, Miss Carter. So we had, um, it, it was really, we were all like, oh my gosh, it was such such an honor for her to um, to come and recognize Project Donna. We were just so honored, so privileged. And so um, we had that reception in 1994, and there were about maybe about 200 volunteers, supporters of Project Donna that got to meet her. Very, I I think the common term for her is gracious, very gracious lady. And um, it it was such an honor for her to be here, to be here, and and to meet Project Donna. The the one thing that that I remember because I. I was very lucky to be there. I was. It's like, oh my gosh, the former first lady is coming here. And it was really, this is just a, I don't know, this is a side note. But when she actually came in 1994, about uh, maybe two months before, um, Mrs. Nakamura, who was at that time the founding administrator of Project Donna, got a call from the Secret Service. It was really <laughs> interesting. And I think nowadays it's a little, little bit more complicated. But they, they wanted to know who was going to be there, a list, the entrances, the exit, who's going to meet her, where they're going to meet her, where is she going to walk, where are they? It was very interesting. Yeah, all the safeguards. Yes, and I think like nowadays it's much more complicated, yeah. but that was interesting. But, you know, this was a cause that was near and dear to Rosalind Carter's heart. And to think that the very first recipient was someone from Hawaii. Yes, yes. You know, it was really... Um, Wonderful, and also for Ms. Uh, Ms. Carter, she also wrote a book, but I understand it's out of print right now. It's Helping Yourself Help Others, and we were so fortunate because she mentioned Project Donna in the book, and she mentioned Mrs. Kanazawa, and she mentioned Mrs. Nakamura as, you know, with the interfaith organization, putting your faith into action. So we were very honored to mention in her book, too. So like I said in the article, over the decades she has remembered us, we're just so grateful and so privileged, you know, for her to remember us that way. Well, I just read with great interest and, you know, watching on TV the memorial service and to see the family decked out in lay and wondered what the connection was. And then finding out, reading an article, she had this connection connection to Hawaii. She took hula lessons when she and her husband, Jimmy Carter, were stationed here, you know, many moons ago. And I love that the Secret Service had a pet name for her, the dancer. That was their secret name. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, she could still do a hula. <laughs> and I understand her first son was born here. Yes. And so, you know, all those ties to the islands that people may not have been aware of, but brought to light with her passing and, you know, her accomplishments and the connections that she made when she was here and when she came back as a former first lady. Yes. Like I said, we were just so honored and so privileged, you know, to for her to come. We're just we're a small organization, you know, and we just take care of elders and caregivers. But we're just so honored that she agreed to um to um to visit us so when we had our 25th anniversary 
we asked her if she can come to be our speaker. But at that time, President Carter wasn't well, so she said she couldn't have to decline our invitation. But she sent her second best. She sent the executive director of her institution to speak. Um, to talk to our volunteers and to thank them for all they're doing. So it was like, wow. And then we had a videotape of Mrs. Carter thanking us. Yeah. So it was really nice. Well, you know, we have just come off of Caregivers Month, you know, acknowledging the contributions of so many family members who take care of their loved ones and who do it because they want to. Yes. You know, and it's so important that they get a break. Yes. They get respite, that they have help in the community. I think maybe here in Hawaii, our culture is such that, you know, we still... We, we will take care of our, fam- our loved ones, you know, whether it's parents or whether it's friends or, you know, but we will still take care of um, our loved um, they, they keep throwing out numbers of, you know, the dollar amount, you know, of, you know, caregivers unpaid. And, and I don't think that <laughs> does justice to what the caregivers do. Yeah. And so tell us, I mean, the, the Donna Project, mm-hmm. how did it get its name? Okay. Project Donna, when we started in 1989, there was a very prominent Buddhist scholar, Dr. Ruth Tabra. And Mrs. Kanazawa and Mrs. Nakamura, when they came up with the idea to start an interfaith um, volunteer caregivers program, they approached her. And apparently, right away, she said, Donna, it has to be called Donna. Donna is a Sanskrit word that means selfless giving. To give of yourself with no expectation of anything back in return. Project Donna, we've had the honor of partnering with many other organizations locally, you know, who help the kapuna or help the caregivers. So, you know, we couldn't do it without our, of course, our volunteers who are the heart of the project, but also without our community partners, we, we couldn't do this. So we're very indebted and grateful to them also. All right. Yeah. Well, Cindy, much mahalo and aloha to you. And thank you so much for coming by. Oh, thank you for asking me. I'm so honored. <laughs> thank you again. Thank you. And happy holidays. Ha- thank you. And that was Cindy Osajima, Executive Director of Project Donna, an interfaith organization focused on caregiving. Support for The Conversation comes from Nohea Gallery at Kahala Mall, featuring handcrafted jewelry, art, local woodwork, and gifts for entertaining from Hawaii artists. NoheaGallery.com. Retailers say they'll close hundreds of stores because of a dramatic rise in shoplifting. Is that what's really driving their losses? The retailers who are talking about shrink, uh, they like to blame retail crime. The problem is, is that there's really no good data out there. You've seen baby formula and razor blades locked behind plastic cases, but is shoplifting really getting worse? That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2 Dual citizenship, what does that mean for citizens of the Federated States of Micronesia? HPR reporter Cassie Ordonio joins us to explore this issue, which has long been debated. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me this morning. Yeah, so uh, dual citizenship, I never really thought about that so much. So what's the snapshot? So the Federated States of Micronesia, which is located in Oceania's western region, Um, They just recently approved dual citizenship. That means, let's say you're born a U.S. citizen, but you have parental ties to the Federated States of Micronesia. So you actually have dual nationality. That's basically how it works. And the Federated States of Micronesia was the only COFA nation to actually approve dual citizenship. You got the Republic of the Palau, Republic of Palau and the Republic of the Marshall Islands who have been um, implemented dual citizenship. So here in the U.S., especially in Hawaii, we have this growing diaspora community of Micronesians living here. I believe in uh, the U.S. Census Bureau that I found in my research, about 94,000 Micronesians of the Compacts of Free Association live in the United States alone. And this is including F, like the citizenships of FSM, the Republic of the Marshall Islands, and the uh, uh, the Republic of Palau, and um, including like their uh, their children and grandchildren. So this was the holdout, I guess. 
Yeah, and there was some debates back then. So the Federated States of Micronesia, they voted on the constitutional amendment four times and dual citizenship was on the table about four times until the president made it official with this executive order. But when I say it's on the table four times, there were debates about whether dual citizenship could be a good thing or a bad thing. It it could either help or hurt families. But this was um, a debate over customary lands. So... If you're an FSM citizen, uh, citizen, you have rights to um, the land back home, like whether it's in Ponpe, Chuk, Koshrai, or Yap. But if someone is a child or a descendant of the FSM citizen, but they're a U.S. citizen, they actually didn't have any type of rights to land, which means they also don't have any voting rights. But I've actually spoken to several Micronesians here in Hawaii, even like one in Michigan and the other one in Arizona. And dual citizenship to them, being in the diaspora, means more to them than just the passport. So for Katie Rutwhite, she's Yappies and she was born in Saipan, which means she's automatically a, a U.S. citizen. But then she also grew up in Arizona, where there's not a lot of Micronesians, and having the citizenship is more to her than just a passport. Because I have an American mother, I feel like I was really disconnected from my Micronesian heritage for so long. So for me, it's just very like impactful to feel like I have this official connection. I oftentimes am the only person that like my friends or people I work with or like my classmates come across that is Micronesian. And so I'm always like the one person explaining like, where is Micronesia? Even when I was turning in my application today, they almost sent it to French Polynesia. <laughs> so I caught the international stamp like I was like wrong country. And just to get it to the right place, I feel like for me, it's this official connection that I get to have like as a piece of paper, but also so much of a symbol to like what I feel like I've been missing. Interesting. So when the FSM president, Wesley Simina, signed the executive order in October that approved dual citizenship, um, there is actually a lot of Micronesians in the diaspora who are already applying for it. So in order to um, show proof uh, that they are descendant of FSM, they would have to show their birth certificate, or they should have at least one parent or maybe both parents who are already FSM citizens. So they also need to submit their passports. So I spoke to you about four um, um, FSM descendants uh, of the Federated States of Micronesia who were in the process of submitting their work already or their documents. Um, I also spoke to, um, he's a Chukis in Pohnpei and his name is Matt Howard. He's here in Hawaii, of a beach resident. He t- walked me through the process of how he was going to apply for dual citizenship and he just submitted his documents about two weeks ago. And for him, um, he actually didn't know he had a choice to choose because under the previous constitution, I guess by, by their law, once you hit 18, I mean, before you hit 18, you're already a dual citizen. But then once you hit hit 18, you have three years to choose between your U.S. citizenship or your FSM citizenship. But for him, because he joined the U.S. Army, he automatically forfeited his FSM citizenship. But now he has a choice to get it back. And what he told me, what he's excited about, is not only just to take pictures of his passport side by side, his FSM passport or his U.S. passport. He's actually um, really getting into what to vote for back home when it comes to... He's engaged in the issues. Yeah. So he's very engaged in the community, very engaged in the issues. So he wants to vote on issues back home. Not only that, um, his mom actually owns land in Pohnpei. So she's the primary sole caretaker of that land. But in case anything, I mean, not going if anything happens to her, he'd be probably the next in line to step up, depending, or maybe one of his sisters. Um, He also has plans to, if his mom allows him to, um, he wants to build a gas station. Um, He said um, in some parts of Pohnpei or other FSM uh, uh, island nations or island uh, states, they actually don't have like what you see as a gas station. Like he said, when he visited back home, the gas stations were kind of more like barrels and you kind of fill it up with a pitcher. Wow. So that's kind of something what he wanted to do, but for... Um, Angela Edward, who lives in Michigan, she is Pohnpeian and um, just also applied for her dual citizenship. She actually kind of wants more of her identity back because when she had the choice, when she turned 18, when she had the choice to choose between U.S. citizenship or FSM citizenship, um, she chose the U.S. citizenship because she wanted to be in higher education and she felt that she would get more opportunities and scholarships. Um, having her U.S. citizenship as opposed to her FSM citizenship. 
Yeah, so um, uh, who else did you talk to? I also talked to, um, I guess last last week, I talked to Senator Ricky Carl and the vice speaker of the FSM, Ponte uh, Legislature. And um, this they've told me this has been an ongoing issue for a while. And um, when applying for dual citizenship, the FSM, or the FSM passport, Carl, Ricky Carl, the senator, says, um, you know, no country won't deny the passport as long have you, if you at least have one parent who's an FSM citizen, then you're not de- denied the citizenship. We're seeing the diaspora of Micronesians who were not born in FSM, searching for their identity, who they are. And I think it makes this issue of dual citizenship very compelling because we're seeing this almost in every society that's in the U.S., they want to find out where they're from. And in an age where you know technology is also being created so that you can just sit in your room and find your ancestry, it creates that sense of need to find out, you know, who am I among these different groups of people? And I think the unique aspect of how we determine citizenship is something that folks in immigration should recognize. As long as you have island or ever some blood in you, you shouldn't be denied citizenship. Interesting. They want to maintain that connection. They do. And another clarification that Senator Ricky Carl has is the double tax. So as long as you have a paying job in the FSM, you will be taxed, but they don't pay property tax in the FSM. So if you're already a U.S. citizen and an FSM citizen, you own land on both, you only pay property tax for the U.S. as opposed Mm -hmm. to the FSM. And then when it comes to traveling, it's actually better to use your U.S. passport. That's um, the advice from Senator Ricky Carl, because uh, they feel that there's more protection if you have your U.S. passport as opposed to an FSM passport. But you can use both if you choose. Right. Might get through the line faster. For sure. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Cassie. Thank you. That was Cassie Ordonio joining us today. Look for her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Haleakala Ranch with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at HaleakalaRanch.com. On this week's On the Media, after failing to gain any seats in recent midterms, the press all but sounded the death knell for the book-banning group Moms for Liberty. But Moms for Liberty is really part of a broader ecosystem that's aimed at sowing distrust in our public schools. From this week's On the Media from WNYC. Beginning this evening at 7. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Foodland, celebrating 75 years of food, family, friends, and aloha, extending a warm mahalo to their customers. Foodland.com. Oahu's Waianae Coast experiences a high rate of food insecurity and a high rate of related diseases, despite producing an abundance of fresh foods. The Waianae Coast Comprehensive Health Center has a program called Ilipayo Social Services. Its goal is to reduce food insecurity and improve the health of its residents by keeping food in Waianae. And they're doing that by providing awareness of healthy eating and promoting local farming. The center's associate director of health promotion, Nikki Hasagawa, and food access manager, Jesse Mikosobe Kelii Nohomoku, talk with the conversation's Mark Ladau about the efforts. 
Jesse, can yeah. you maybe describe the needs on the Waianae Coast and maybe why serving that community is uh, particularly Im- important? Definitely, definitely. I'd be happy to. So a little, little bit history behind Waianae. You know, we're, we're currently the population in charge of the entire statistic of being high in you know, obesity, high in chronic illness, and we are leading cause towards it. Um, and we found that diet is a huge portion of that statistic. So as a part of social services, we have the autonomy to choose the food that comes in through our food banks, through our pantries, and distributed out into the community and ultimately into people's um, diets and the folks that needs it. They know that the Wyoming coast is, I guess, historically a breadbasket. There's a lot of food that gets oh, produced yeah. out there, but not a lot of it stays within the community. Can you sort of describe, I guess, that relationship there and why that is the case? Uh, yeah, that's actually a difficult uh, question, but it is something that I can touch upon. We have a lot of our food is produced here in Waianae. A lot of it is leaving Waianae and it's going towards the tourism industry. A lot of it is being sold outside of Waianae and not necessarily purchased within the community. And Elipio, this is where Elipio Social Services is really a key factor in getting food into Waianae. Is we purchase foods directly from the farmer. And it comes directly to our pantries, our kupuna pantries, and then handed out within on the community. And that's one of our ways that we keep foods within YNI. And uh, Nikki can speak on this as well because she's the one purchasing and knows where to, to get the food from. I guess to add to kind of Jesse's statement, we're a food basket where a lot of like good local produce is grown, but we're also like a food desert because a lot of our community members don't get access to that food that we are we're, we're cultivating that we're making out here. And I think a big reason for that is because they don't have like the education behind how to prepare the foods. You know, like you can put you know simple basic produce in front of them like a potato, like onions tomato, those types of things, they definitely know what to do. But when you're, you know, when we have things that are like bok choy, things that are not familiar to them, it's really difficult for them to have that relation of like how to prepare. So um, not only how Jesse was explaining, not only do we do that, but we also do like the education piece, which we know that is is really important. Um, so what we try to do is, and, and our, our driving thing is try to take something like familiar with something unfamiliar and really tie it together to kind of, to show them that, you know, you don't have to completely change your ways of eating. You can still have like spam, but instead of like spam by itself, like add a vegetable to it, add kale to it, add something, you know, that is grown here. And so so for us, that's like a, that's a big piece is the education part. And so we, like Jesse had explained, we do food distributions and kupuna pantries and keiki pantries. But a big part of what we do is also community education because we know that, you know, out here we have the highest diseases related to nutrition. And we know that a lot of the Native Hawaiians out here are suffering from that. Maybe it would be a good time to talk a little bit about the programs. I do know one that I'm particularly aware of is the uh, food subscription program. Can you describe what Elopayo Social Services is doing to kind of meet that that goal, that mission? Um, yeah, definitely. We are doing cake and kupuna ca- pantries. So we service a thousand kupuna a week, uh, five days a week. Uh, we're going out to different places, uh, different sites around the leeward coast, popping up tents and distributing food. We also are doing keiki pantries. Uh, We're in every single one of the schools in the Leeward Coast, and we're servicing 3,600 keiki. And so all those keiki are taking home five-pound commodity food bags, healthy snacks, and produce when they're available. Like I mentioned, we have a farmer's market. So we have a farmer's market on Tuesday at the Health Center and on Saturdays at Waianae Mall. So the Tuesday market is from 9 to 12, and the Saturday market is from 8 to 12. And so we really like to point out that those are food access points for our community. Um, And so our farmer's market was the first on the island to start our own double bucks program with private funding. Uh, We are currently the largest double bucks program in the state at a farmer's market currently. We also do WIC. All of our vendors are required to either use 50% locally sourced items or half of their menu needs to be um, healthy. So we have those. We have currently three food as medicine programs. And then we also have our food subscription program. And that one is was born actually out of when we are doing those food distributions. 
And, you know, we were always thinking of the fact that we were putting all this food in people's cars and not knowing if it was culturally relevant to them, if they had cold storage space, if, you know, they had heating or cooking elements. And so we were able to create this food subscription program for families, uh, for head of households that would receive $250 a month for six months. And uh, we are asking quality of life questions. And that was more geared toward Alice households, so asset limited, income constrained, but employed and working. So those are the people that are kind of in the middle, not receiving any benefits because they make too much, but their paychecks are just not enough. So that's what we do for the food end. And then I can let Jesse explain kind of the future of what we're doing with like our food campus. Sure. Yeah. Just you want to. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, We're always trying to look for, as food system planners, we're always trying to look for ways to curve that, yeah, that climbing data or that climbing um, need. And one of the biggest ways that I've been taught is to teach people uh, how to grow their own food. But in order to do that, you have to show them, yeah. We live in a community of applied learners, and the food campus is one of our opportunities to house this, this, this special space, but to bring in folks to come in and see what these you know, ambassador gardens or these demo gardens look like to, to incorporate into their, their backyard. Uh, we recently just got this huge grant to implement some of these gardens into people's yards and giving them the needed startup materials to get this, you know, gardens to access food from going forward in the future. You know, again, it leans back on the form of education. One of these uncles in the community told me, you know, our community, we used to be able to grow our own food and we never had to worry about food insecurity or access to food. And this is one of the ways that we believe is heading back there. And, and we're not teaching them. We're just reinforming our community. They know that's why. It's in their DNA as Indigenous peoples to incorporate these practices back into their um, lifestyles. And we, we're so honored to be those people to, to help them get there. And yeah, the comp and Ellipot Social Services is building this nursery. Part of this nursery, we were planning on incorporating several different species of plants. Of course, our indigenous um, native plants, but food trees too. You know, trees that people can grow in their yards, trees that they can take and plant and see as a productive source for, and then ultimately, something they could also make profit from where, you know, the excess amount of fruit could be sold to the potential food hubs that is being erected in our communities. So you can see the full circle by just planting a tree and we're trying to get them to plant a garden, have them eat out of it and have a healthier lifestyle. That was Jesse Mikasobe Kelly Nohumoku and Nikki Hasegawa of the Wainai Coast Comprehensive Health Center. And at this hour, they are holding a planting ceremony for coconut trees on the center's campus. The effort is in response to the coconut rhinoceros beetle that is devastating palm trees in Hawaii. In February, the center will hold its annual Eat Local Challenge at the Wainai Mall to highlight healthy food and to encourage local farming. it for us today. Tomorrow and all this week, we continue to look at the research underway connected to the Maui wildfires, thanks to the efforts of scientists and researchers at the University of Hawaii. Have a story idea to share with us? Call our talk back line, 808-792-8217. You can find the conversation segments on our website or at your favorite podcast store. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.